Foundation Physiotherapy at Georgetown Honda present Out of the Park with Barry Davis. This week, we take a deep dive with Pat Hankinton to everything from performance enhancing drugs to sticky things on baseballs. And we learned that even back in the 90s, they had some close shaves with the rules. And you know, when I was a starting pitcher, I used the sticky stuff. I used uh, rosin and shaving cream. And the rosin and shaving cream, the shaving cream would dissolve. It was like the alcohol in the shaving cream. Then you grab the rosin and it would make it like a stickiness. But it didn't last. It only lasted for like an inning at the most. And then you'd have to do it again in between innings sometimes. And now, here's a man who was covering Hanky back in those early days. Never supplied him with any shaving cream because, well, he wasn't using it yet. It's Barry Davis. This is true. I, I did not start shaving till I was about 35, Tom. And uh, for those watching the program, the uh, the goatee that I'm sporting now. By the way, you never did comment on the new look, the goatee, Tom. And I'm really disappointed that you didn't. But uh, yeah, this I'm pretty sure you're painting it on. That's why I didn't say anything about only it. Only took me only took me six weeks to grow, folks. So uh, there you go. Fo wow, we are in for a treat. And you have already heard this, Tom. I've been a part of it. Uh, so have some of our OTP insiders, Tom. I got to tell you, Pat Hankin opens up on a number of subjects, including, of course, the sticky tack. He talks about, you know, his glory days with the Toronto Blue Jays, including winning a Cy Young. Some of the players that he idolized, some that he was very intimidated by, not just as teammates, but players that he faced. We also get into PEDs and Pat Hankin reveals something to us that he has never said publicly before. So you're going to definitely want to hear that, not to mention... We get into the entire Roberto Alomar situation, or at least what we know of it, and how that has affected the Toronto Blue Jays alumni. So a great show coming up. You'll want to listen to Pat Henkin. Also, Thomas, when we return, uh, well, the Blue Jays are all of a sudden doing some pretty amazing things. In fact, over the last week, they did something that hasn't been done in almost 90 years. We shall explain next. There is Tom Forth. I'm Barry Davis. You're listening to and watching Out of the Park. A play ball. Ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, the first pitch with Barry Davis. The first pitch is brought to you by Georgetown Honda. Thomas, uh, this is what I do for a living now. This is where I am every day during the week, hanging out at Georgetown Honda, trying to help people find cars. And I'm going to tell you something. Cars are not easy to find right now. Uh, there is definitely a shortage in automobiles. So if you are looking for something, give me a shout. I'll help you find something. I'll do everything I can to help put you into a car of your dreams. Exactly. As hard as it is getting to find those cars, it's easier in Georgetown with the help of Barry Davis than anybody else. Go see him. That's right. And if you come see me and purchase a car for me and say I listen out of the park, I will offer you a $100 gas card. How about that? I think that's a great... I'm going to come, and I'm going to see you. Yeah, you got to buy a car, though, Tom. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, Tom, last week we went into the fact that you can't make too much of this. Well, if the Blue Jays are going to make the postseason, they're going to have to play 600 ball the rest of the way, and the other teams are going to have to do this. And Well, you know what? Uh, the Blue Jays... Uh, have gone a very long stretch, and as we speak now, uh, they've just come back and tied the Baltimore Orioles in the first game of their series. Uh, the Blue Jays were playing 1,000 baseball over a span, so you can't, as you said, you can't look too far ahead. 
you have to look at the situation the way it is right now. And the Blue Jays are right there chasing a postseason spot. And, oh, my goodness, this is fun. What I'd mentioned about almost 90 years, the last time the New York Yankees played a four-game series and didn't have a lead once, 1924. Just think about that and how incredible that is. Such a display of dominance in one of the hardest places to go in and play. And the Yankees didn't have a lead in the series. They didn't even come close to having a lead. They never, you know, were there any interesting games? We we controlled them throughout. What a statement to make at this time of the season. We talked about this last week. And my line, you know, I was being mindful about the situation. I was talking about what a great team we had and how making the postseason isn't necessarily the end-all and be-all with baseball, right? 92 didn't happen without 91 or 88. And now here we are a week later, and they haven't lost. They, they 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 knocked the crap out of just the right team at just the right time. Boston's on the skids. New York's on the skids. We've already hopscotched the A's in Seattle. What an amazing finish we got coming up. Yeah, and the Blue Jays need to take advantage of the fact that the Yankees and Red Sox play each other a few times. And if the Blue Jays can win on those days, they're going to gain on one of those teams. Now, the downfall is if they lose... They will lose ground to one of those teams. But the thing is, those two teams are playing each other. So let them beat each other up. And even if the Blue Jays manage to take the second wild card, not the first, so be it. Uh, it would be nice to see a wild card game in Toronto. And if it's the Yankees they play, they will be playing in Toronto because the Jays have a better record against the Yankees this year. So that's how it works as far as your home field advantage. So the Blue Jays uh, may not only make it into the wild card game, but may have it at home, which would be really cool. Yeah, absolutely. What what a what a thing for Toronto, right? And so let's lots of get lots of baseball still to play, right? If last week taught us anything, let's let's wait for the next week and I think we've got a few more weeks left in the season, but let's enjoy it. Yeah, I would love Who do you like better in a matchup postseason if it is a wild card game? Would you rather Boston or would you rather the Yankees? I think I'd rather the Jays play Boston. Uh, I just think that there are more holes in that team right now. I think the Yankees just have this way of finding, they always find a way to get that dramatic win when they just seem to be written off by everybody. Mm -hmm. And I just don't want the Blue Jays to have to face Brett Gardner, who is probably hitting <laughs> 050 against the rest of baseball. But against the Blue Jays, he always seems to bring his best. So, uh, yeah, great week for the Blue Jays, and we'll see how this thing plays out. This is going to be a lot of fun down the stretch. I do want to make mention of a couple of things. First of all, uh, got to give it up for Joey Votto. Uh, if you missed it, uh, we're going to play you a little bit of something he did uh, for a young fan who uh, has been uh, suffering from cancer. And Joey befriended this kid, brought him to a game, and check out what he does in the course of a baseball game. We'll talk all game, okay? You stay here and we'll talk all game, okay? I just hope the kid told him to bunt. I think that would be a real boss thing. <laughs> it, I have never. And I I have sat, you know, during my time covering baseball uh, in places where I've been close enough 
to, to see the on-deck circle where the on-deck hitter is right beside me. I've never seen a player talk to a fan like that before during a game. Uh, Joey Votto, major two thumbs up to you. Uh, this is a guy who was one of the first Major League players to talk openly about mental health issues that he was having. Uh, he suffered from pretty serious depression after his father passed away, uh, opened up and talked about it, and allowed many others to uh, to talk openly about their mental health issues. And to me, uh, that says so much about who he is as a person. Yeah, this is this is showing baseball a, a step where they can go. I mean, it's a hard world right now. COVID's hit everybody hard. Uh, organizations right now that have this power to go out and just, you know, this is one kid. But how many reach out initiatives like this could baseball and baseball players do? It, it could be such a huge force for positivity in this world that needs one. So right now, this is one story that's amazing. I hope it's the first of many. I do too. Well, speaking of amazing stories, there are many that you are about to hear, folks, from, in my opinion, one of the greatest Blue Jays all time, a guy that really uh, deserves a lot more praise than what he's had in his career. He's won a Cy Young. He's won a World Series. He's been an All-Star. Uh, and now he's just a tremendous spokesman for the organization. Pat Henkin coming up next. There's Tom Monberry you're listening to and watching Out of the Park. Last season he was 5-1 and one and had fine performances. An 0-2 pitch and another strikeout. What a start for Pat Henkin. So a few have struck out a dozen. No one has struck out 13 until Pat Henkin did it. Here's the 3-2 pitch. He struck him out. Pat Hinkin has thrown his first big league complete game. Picture you in my mind. I, I just keep hoping one day you're going to come back with the, the handlebar mustache. I mean, that was of all the Pat Hinkin looks. And I will tell you, as ugly as those uniforms were back in the day, the handlebar mustache really helped bring out whatever good was in that uniform. Yeah, it's funny. You know, that mustache, I, I – uh, I kind of had a baby face when I signed it at 17 and I, it took me a long time before I could grow facial hair. And, and uh, I finally was able to grow that mustache and I felt like it wasn't very thick and it wasn't that good. And I remember one time when I was pitching, I looked up at the jumbotron and it was a side shot and my mustache looked like it was sticking out like Jack Morris's. And I remember thinking, Oh my gosh, that looks ridiculous. And then my wife was teasing me. She didn't like it. So I shaved it off like a couple starts later. And I remember Conseco when we were teammates that year came up to me and he said, Hey, he goes, can I give you some advice? I said, yeah. He said, grow that stash back. He goes, you look like you're 20 years old out there. <laughs> you know, Jose Canseco now. Now I think Jose is kind of like lost it. I don't know if you ever see any of his tweets or posts, but, you know, you know, he's he's waiting for the aliens to come and, and take him away and stuff. But when he came to the Blue Jays, I know as a young media guy, I was intimidated by him. I didn't know how to approach him, how to talk to him. But once I kind of broke down those barriers, I realized he's really just a He's not he's not as tough as the exterior shows. As a teammate, did you guys find that out too? That as you got to know him, that, that whole facade that he has underneath that, he really wasn't as uh, you know, a, a big, you know, mean guy. Yeah. You know, it's funny when players switch from team to team year after year after year, they tend to have a real tight-knit circle when they join a club. And Canseco was only there one year, so he wasn't like super open and had a big circle of guys that he that he hung with every night. He was pretty tight with about three or four guys. But yeah, overall, man, he was fun. He was a great player. I think he helped Sean Green and Delgado uh, offensively. 
And, uh, you know, he was just a gifted player. I really liked him. I thought he was a good teammate. And, he, and you know, he was a heck of an offensive player, as everyone knows. And the funny story about Canseco is I was friends with Terry Steinbeck years ago when we played, and he told me Canseco was a great outfielder when he first got called up defensively. Like, this guy could play. And basically, you know, in MLB, guys don't get paid for great defense. They get paid for offense. And, unfortunately, that's where players strive to be the best player. And when you stop working on your defensive skills, you see the defense kind of goes like this and the offense goes like this. But, yeah, he was a great player all around. Were there any other players you came across in your career that might have had a reputation like that as being maybe a little bit of a troublemaker? And then you get into the clubhouse with them and you found that, you know, the public perception was completely off from what that player actually brought. Uh, Ricky Henderson comes to mind. You know, I played against Ricky for years, and, uh, you know, he was such a great player. I mean, to me, top three or four all-time players, or five for sure. And, uh, you know, when he got and he came over, I realized, first of all, A, how confident he was. But it was a good thing. It wasn't like he was bragging a lot. It was just the fact that he had this inner confidence about him. A quick story. Stuart and I were in the clubhouse in Baltimore, Dave Stewart and Ricky. And I was in a cafeteria, and it was at that time the locker room. I don't know if it's changed, but at that time it was just one big square, and then there was a tiny square off that that was a cafeteria. We were in this tiny little square eating, and it was just me, Stu, and Ricky. You know what they were arguing about? They were talking about who was going to get the ALCS MVP. We were going to play the White Sox that year in the playoffs. We had already clinched, and we were just winding down the season, getting ready for the playoffs. And I remember Ricky and them talking about, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. Oh, bullshit, I'm going to get it. And I remember just thinking, holy man. And I think Stu got it, if I'm not mistaken. And, and, and But Ricky was that guy that people perceived him as being, um, you know, flamboyant and a guy. But I guarantee his teammates loved him. I guarantee the guys in Oakland liked him, too. You know, why is it that there aren't other Ricky Hendersons out there? Because, you know, you look at pitching, and pitching's gotten faster and faster as we've gone along. So, obviously, stolen bases are going to be harder to come by. But the players, I believe, are running faster than they were in the 90s, too. Why is it that we're not seeing a Ricky Henderson blast in 100 stolen bases in a season anymore? analytics i mean the analytics will tell you that it isn't worth the risk of trying to get thrown out you know trying to steal and you take a chance getting thrown out you only get 27 outs you don't want to make any outs on a base pass and i think analytically they've looked at that and said we just don't know if it's worth the risk the reward versus the risk and um you know quite frankly nobody's like is going to be like ricky henderson he was unbelievably durable uh he was an unbelievable offensive player to get all those bases you got to be on first base so i mean on top of that he was a 300 hitter uh, first ballot Hall of Famer. So you're not going to see a lot of guys like Ricky Henderson run the bases anymore like that. I, I don't think you will. I mean, you might have guys that do it, but it's the durability that is, and it's his longevity that is just so different than everyone else's. You know, Pat, you mentioned, and we talked about how guys sometimes, the way they're perceived are different than the way they are. And we're seeing a lot of, not just professional athletes, but celebrities in general, going out on social media and almost, you know, within a few words, destroying their careers. I mean, we've seen Jack Morris do it recently. I know that there are some others that, you know, things they've said or things they've tweeted have completely, you know, upended their career. As a, as a former player, uh, when you're on social media, because you have a social media page, do you have to, like, almost think two, three, four times before you hit post just to make sure that what you're saying is not going to upset certain people? Well, I mean, you know, there's no doubt with the culture we're living in today, it's like, you know, you think about, I watched that game. I went back and listened to what Jack said. And unfortunately, he was just trying to be funny. I think anybody that knows Jack knows that he's not like that and that he was just trying to be funny. And, and unfortunately, you know, sometimes when you try to be funny, it backfires. 
I've had it happen to me many a times where I'm not trying to be funny and then, and then you end up being funny and then you try to be funny and it's like, whoa, straight crickets. So I think Jack was trying to be funny and it backfired and it's unfortunate. But yeah, absolutely. I started joining social media when COVID started a year and a half ago. And, and um, you know, I'm very reluctant to hit send or post because I'm so I'm not scared. It's just I just don't want to offend anybody, I guess. And, you know, you're just like, OK, I've really not been a big factor in social media. So for me, it's kind of new, but. I do enjoy reading some of the posts and stuff. I think it's pretty cool. Do you think you would have been a fan of having that sort of avenue for expression during your playing days, or would you have seen it just as a distraction? Well, you know, it's funny. When I was a coach in 13 and 11, uh, Aaron Sebia and Ricky Romero were really big into social media, and they were big players with us and star players at the time. And I remember telling Pete Walker, the pitching coach, who's still there now, and, and you guys know him, he's a great guy. I remember telling him, man, the social media is hurting this kid. And he said, what do you mean? He said, man, he races in after the sixth inning. And he can't wait to go see his phone to see what people are saying on Twitter, whether you pitched good or not. And I remember uh, Jack Morris gave me really good advice my rookie year. He said, listen, he said, with the media, he said, if you pitch well, read the paper. He said, if you don't pitch well, don't pick up the paper. Get ready for your next start four days away. And I thought that was a great mindset and a good way to just block out all the distractions. And that's really hard right now for the current players to block out everything because they've grown up with the social media. So, yeah, you know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I say like Tom and I are going through the, the the same thing like every day. Like Tom keeps telling me, stop reading Twitter because all it does is it gets me upset because you know uh, everything is bad news, everything is sensationalized, and everything is is a fight now. And you know it's one of those things where you just want to avoid it. And you know taking that a step further, we're seeing things in baseball now off the field that I don't think we've ever seen whether it be Josh Donaldson ripping uh, Garrett Cole on social media or New York Mets players giving thumbs down to their fans that are booing. And then I thought, what is going on in the world of baseball? And I think it's a microcosm what's going on in the world. We're all just, you know, so messed up and confused and disappointed and, and angry with what's going on. Uh, do you think that there's a correlation with what's going on in the world and, and what we're seeing now? with these guys all kind of turning on each other in the game of baseball? Yeah, I mean, social media, it's a cool thing, but it can be so negative at times, too. And I look at these players today, and I wonder myself how I would react and how I would do it with Twitter and with social media. It's not easy. Look, I mean, we had a professional courtesy when I played. The, police, the players policed it themselves. We would have never come out on a social media platform or in the media back then. We had the newspaper. So we would have never come out in the newspaper and said, hey, Garrett Cole's not that good because he's you know, performs with that sticky stuff. We would have taken care of it ourselves privately without bringing the media involved. So that, that's the way I would have answered that. And that's the way I would have handled that. I think it's the same thing if you manage a club. You don't want all your discretions in the public. Sometimes you need to keep things within the clubhouse and inside your office. And I think that that's the way the players managed it back then. I think that's the way they need to manage it now. And then getting back to like thumbs down thing, Fans need to go call their mom right now. I mean, the players need to call their parents and say, you know, and watch that Little League World Series. Because I remember when I played, we had that on the TV in the clubhouse every inning, every game. We loved watching that stuff when I played. And it's like that pure enjoyment, that passion for the game. And that's what MLB players have. And I don't know how it starts to diminish as their careers go on, but that's the key thing is to stay focused and play like a Little League or act like one. Sign autographs be a pro. You bring up a bit of a sticky situation that I really wanted to ask you about, and that is what is your thoughts on, you know, the whole spider tack sort of drama and, and how it's been handled this year? 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. I When I played with David Getty, David Getty at the end of his career came and played with Toronto, and he brought shaving cream and rosin to the clubhouse, to the team. And it was the first time I had ever seen that before. And I think he pitched with the Giants a year before that season. And he said, oh, man, everybody in the Giants bullpen is doing it. And it creates like a tackiness for your fingers. Well, anybody that pitched will tell you that as the game goes on later in the game, the balls aren't rubbed up as well. So in the fifth inning to the ninth inning, the balls are a little more slicker. So the relievers needed that actually at that time. Now, I don't know if they're rubbing the balls up more consistently or not. But And, you know, when I was a starting pitcher, I used the sticky stuff. I used uh, rosin and shaving cream. And the rosin and shaving cream, the shaving cream would dissolve. It was like the alcohol in the shaving cream. Then you grab the rosin and it would make it like a stickiness. But it didn't last. It only lasted for like an inning at the most. And then you'd have to do it again in between innings sometimes. If it was humid, you'd have to do it every inning for sure. And then I started to go with a little bit of pine tar on my glove hand. I put a little bit of pine tar on my glove hand. My teammates knew. Other players, I think, knew. I think the league kind of knew that we were doing that. It's just um, I don't think we realized if it was uh, it was manipulating the spin rate as much as it was. You know, I was doing it more for a grip. If I didn't, I, I didn't realize that it may have added more revolutions to my spin rate. So I, I, I think that the way they handled it, um, I don't like the part where the pitchers come off the field and they're checking them. I think there's got to be a better way to do that. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you just live and you keep li- learning by your lessons, I guess. Can you imagine in the day that Roy Halladay pitched? You know when Doc was in his zone. Right. He, he didn't like the catcher to come out to talk to him. He did. You know, he was he just focused on what he had to do. Can you imagine Doc coming off the mound after giving up a two or three spot? And all of a sudden the umpire says, take, you know, under your belt. We need to see inside you. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a big fan of it either. You know, but there's a lot of things I'm not a fan of. Some of the changes that have happened in MLB. I mean, I don't like the fact that you can't take out second baseman. I don't like the fact you can't take out the catcher. I don't like the four pitch walk. I don't like the three batter minimum. I hate the guy on second base. I think that's – you turned MLB into 30U. I mean, yeah. you know, we call it 13U, 14U. You turn an MLB into 30U, man. It's Major League Baseball, and, and uh, there's a tradition and a history with it, and it's a passion and a love for the game. And to alter the rules, I mean, I just feel like, wow, the audacity of people to change rules in MLB kind of blew me away a little bit. Do you see it ever swinging back and, and getting to more of a traditional approach? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I love analytics. I, I think they're great and a big part of the game. I just think there needs to be a nice blend to run a team. Um, you know, as far as the changes in MLB, I'm just not for them. I don't see how they've made the game better, faster, more efficient, and more fan-friendly. I just don't see it. I just feel like it's been a great game for 100 years and I hate to change the rules. I just hate to change the rules. Yeah, there was something. I, I, Tom, we were watching your son play last night, and there was something in the game, and we just talked about, you know, you know, Major League Baseball, they spend so much time reviewing plays. Oh, here it was. So, you know, there's four umpires on the field. If the umpire at first base blatantly misses a call at first base and the home plate umpire sees it, like, why is it up to a manager to say, whoa, whoa, they missed something? If you're one of the umpires and you see that there was a miss, couldn't that home plate umpire go to the first base umpire and say, yo, dude, you, you missed that call. We're going to have to reverse it. Wouldn't that save a lot of hassle and happen to go to the headphones and stuff? Because surely one of the umpire, other umpires sees that it was the wrong call. But maybe it's a matter of well, I'm not going to go over st- overstep one of my colleagues because I don't want to make him look bad. But then the video replay review is going to make him look bad anyway. 
Yeah, no, I know you're right. I think maybe it, it is the umpires just kind of a professional courtesy. You don't want to make them look bad. Um, that could be it. I don't know. I think with replay, I like replay. I like parts of it. I just, like you said, I don't like the manager having to come out and determine when they're going to watch the replay and when they're not just replay everything. Yeah. Just put a, just put a Bluetooth umpire in the, in the booth and just replay every play. And, uh, is, except that of course, when you have runners on base, you can't really do it as often quite honestly, because of the, obviously the ghost runner thing, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. Some of the changes that have happened. I, I, uh, I still love MLB. Everything I have is because of MLB and um, I'm a huge fan and I love to endorse the game and everything, but it does kind of make you scratch your head when you see some of the changes that have happened. Um, it's still a great game, still the quickest game, still the fastest game, still the best major league baseball is the best baseball in the world. And uh, it's just a global game. It's so exciting. Look at what the guy in Anaheim's done. I mean, are you kidding me? Otani. That's yeah. awesome. It's so cool to watch. Yeah. How is it? A player like Otani, is that just coming up in a different system? Like, do we filter people through as pitchers and fielders maybe too early so we're not getting those people at a major league level that can hit as capably and field as capably as Otani if they're a pitcher? Yeah, great question. I, I encourage all the kids to play all the sports and play all the positions as long as you can. I know, like, I know for sure there could have been guys in the big leagues that could, that could have done what Otani's doing. Maybe not 40 homers. But I can tell you right now, there are guys that easily could have pitched in the big leagues and still been great hitters. First guy that comes to mind is Oliver. I mean, Oliver was like 13 was in college ball. And, and, you know, he was great. And I remember the front office at the time, they were deciding on whether they should hit him or pitch him. And he was just so good at both. I think he could have easily done both. Um, I think there's more multiple guys. Wasn't Winfield a great pitcher? Cal yeah. Ripken great pitcher. I mean, all those guys, a lot of those Hall of Fame players were all great pitchers. They were just so good at hitting and running. It was It's harder to find that guy than it is to find a guy that can pitch. And likewise, there are a lot of pitchers out there. And, you know, when when you do see them get some at-bats over the National League, you see they can hit. Uh, you can see they can feel their positions. For you personally, Pat, do you remember the moment in your life as a young, a younger man or even a young boy that you – made that decision that pitching was where it was going to be for you because there was really no, you know, Otani option that you were just going to make it into the big leagues as both. So when did you decide that pitching is definitely your thing? I didn't get to decide. They told me. <laughs> who, who told you? The, the scouts? Yeah, the pro scouts. And I, I got, so I got drafted out of high school. I was shortstop up until yeah. uh, eight games into my senior year. I played shortstop. And then I went into the high school coach and I said, hey, listen, I said, I pitch in summer ball. And I said, I could pitch. And he's like, well, you know, we're a better team when you play shortstop. And then I finally went out and pitched because we didn't have a rain out. And we, were, we couldn't pitch the same kid every game. And then uh, I got the pitch and I pitched a good game. He called me and he said, I'm sorry, man, we're, you're, we are a better team when you pitch. And then you're going to start pitching. So I started pitching. Next thing you know, I got D1 schools coming to watch me pitch. And then the D1 schools called the pro teams. And then I ended up getting drafted. So I wasn't, I did not have a choice. They, were, they told me, you're getting drafted as a pitcher. Are you good with that? And I said, yeah. So... How excited were you, though, when, when all of a sudden your coach sees you pitch and says, we're better when you pitch? That's got to be incredible to hear as a young guy. You know what? I mean, a 17-year-old high school senior, I, I played summer ball against the guys that I went to high school ball with. So I played summer ball against him. I knew I could pitch like him. I knew I pitched like him in the summer, but the high school coach didn't see us play in the summer back then. You know, he never got to see me pitch in the summer. And I sprouted up. I grew like four or five inches between my junior and senior year. So I started gaining a lot of velo, too. And, uh, 
yeah, it was kind of cool. I mean, the next thing you know, I get drafted. I mean, who would ever thought? I never, I sure as heck didn't think I was getting drafted. <laughs> See, you get drafted, and you know, obviously, you have a fantastic career. You go into you know the development part of the game after with the Blue Jays for years. Um, as a pitcher and as someone in development in the game, is there a magic recipe for success pitching at the major league level? Because you came to it late. I believe we've talked to a, a whole bunch of former Blue Jays pitchers. And it seems for everyone that pitched since they were five, there's someone like yourself who really didn't start pitching full-time until late in high school. Even university or college, Jesse Litch, I believe, comes to mind. Uh, he yep. didn't even start pitching until then. You know, So if you're trying to build a professional pitcher, do you start him at eight or do you start him at 18? You're asking for your own self, aren't you, with your, your 11-year-old son? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here's what I would say if I had a son and played ball. I would have him play as many sports as he could fit in the calendar year without overlapping. I would play as many multiple positions as I could because playing shortstop helped me become a quarterback. When I was quarterback in high school, it made me a tougher player in baseball. You know, being in the huddle on a Friday night with the crowd, you don't get that in baseball in high school. You get that heart pumping adrenaline going in football. You get that camaraderie and you get that, that huddle feel. You don't get that in baseball. You don't get that in basketball. You know, so I would have missed out on that if I wouldn't have played high school football. So I encourage all the kids to do that. As far as pitching, I would actually throw uh, I would I have no problem pitching at a young age. All the kids that are eight, nine, ten years old. We all did it. We all throw. I threw a ton. I feel like if you throw with good mechanics, you can't you, you can throw. I wouldn't throw you around, but you can throw with the proper mechanics. You can really build up your arm strength at that age nine to 15. Uh, it's the abuse. I think you got to be careful with the Little League coaches. They're all wanting to win that Burger King championship instead of focusing on developing kids. You know, I remember when Bobby Maddock ran the minor leagues, we didn't even focus on winning in professional baseball. We were focused on developing players and getting them in the big leagues. And, and, and I see so much in amateur baseball right now. It's just win, 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 win. And I get it. I love winning. I'm, a, I'm as competitive as anybody you'll meet. But the bottom line is, yeah, if it was my son, I want to develop him. I want him to develop in stages. I want to see him mature before he starts spinning breaking balls. Instead of seeing these 12-year-old kids throwing breaking balls that are sidearm and they're on the Little League World Series, but check, check them out seven years later. Where are they at? I want the kid that throws four-seamers all the time at 12 years old, and he's still doing okay because that kid's going to learn how to spin the ball. That kid's going to learn how to be a pitcher, and I think that he'll develop and become a better player. Pat, let's go back in time now. In, in 1991 is when you made your debut in the majors with the Blue Jays, September 3rd, in fact, against the Baltimore Orioles. You know, you're one of those rare guys that was with a team so long that you went from the wide-eyed rookie to the veteran that the young wide-eyed rookies look up to. What do you recall the first time you walked into that clubhouse and, and saw some of the names that were around back then? Because, I mean, you look back to 1991, I mean, even pitching-wise, I mean, you, you had uh, you had Hankey and Ward and you had, uh, I think, uh, David Wells was on that team. I mean, you, had, you were surrounded by some pretty intimidating guys there. Dave, Steve, Jimmy Key, Hanky, Ward, Icorn. No, Icorn was 92. Uh, Candiotti, Guzman and I pitched in AAA. Guzzi got called up before I did. Um, yeah, it was, uh, you walked into that locker room, you were just like, what? Uh, you know, you're a lifelong minor leaguer, career big league fan, and all of a sudden you're up there walking around in that locker room. I'll never forget, Vince Horseman and I actually had the locker in the Bat Boys locker room because there were so many extra players in September. And uh, I remember we would hurry up and get changed and then go back out in the locker room because it was kind of embarrassing that our locker 
was a third of the size and shoved into the back corner of the locker room with all the bad boys. But hey, it was cool. Vince and I, we talked about it years later and we both loved every minute of it and we do it again in a heartbeat. So uh, it, it was a cool feeling to walk into that locker room. You know, I just saw on Twitter that today's the 30th anniversary of my major league debut. Oh, wow. So there you go. Oh, yeah, I just saw that before I got on with you. And uh, it was Bob Melvin, the, the manager of the Ace. And, I, and a quick story about my debut. Yeah. So back, back then, we all sat on the perch in the bullpen above the home run wall. And Wardo and Hanky always sat in the same two spots. Hanky could see down at the bullpen coach, John Sullivan. The phone was down there. Sully was down there. I was a starting pitcher. Cito called down in the fifth and said, Henkin has the eighth and ninth. He called down in the fifth. Because he told, he knew it took me a little longer to get warmed up. I was groomed and developed as a starting pitcher. It took me 15 minutes to get going. So that's the type of feel that Cito had, right? So he calls down, tells me I got the knife. Well, now my heart's racing a mile a minute now, you know. And I get warming up, and I'm starting to warm up. And I go off the back slope of the mound. It's all dirt. And as you approach the fence, the, dug, the dugout wall or the home run wall, you open the door up like this. And I go off the dirt and I slip with my spikes on that cement and I go straight down on my butt and I look up and all I could see is Hanky's face. He's staring down at me and Wardo and they're both laughing, pointing at me. And all I could think about was that stupid movie, Dumb and Dumber, when that guy. Ate that <laughs> and they're pointing at me, ah, what a goof. We got. Yeah. So anyway, and then uh, I, I get up, I stand up and my heart's racing. And I remember running out on the turf at the old turf. And I remember just not even feeling the ground, not even feeling the ground. And then when I got to the mound, all I kept thinking was just throw it over, just throw strikes. That's it. Just throw strikes. That's all I was doing was hoping to throw strikes. I threw, I think I threw like nine or 10 straight fastballs because I was just trying to throw strikes. That was it. And I mean, I lucky got out of it, but it was a great thrill. Do you have anything to remember that day by pictures, video, the baseball, the lineup card, like anything? I don't. I just have it here. And I got great memories in the last years with Dwayne Ward and, and Tom Hankey. Not that long ago. We both laughed about it. They remember it as well. Oh, and by the way, now they got a nice rubber mat there that, that <laughs> the bridges down to the wall. Yeah. Yeah. They should call that the Henkin mat. Yes. They yeah, should. It's, it's like that source of pride. It's how you made your mark, right? Yeah, exactly. Do you remember how you pitched in the game? Other than the oh, nine straight. I just saw it on Twitter, two scoreless. That's I, I remember striking off Bob Melvin, the first hitter I faced on five straight fastballs. I remember that. After that, I don't remember much, yeah. You mentioned getting up on that mound, and, and I remember that you were one of the biggest proponents always of the Rogers Center or Sky Dome mound. So I want to ask you, what was it about that mound, and, or still is to this day, because you still hear pitchers talking about they love the mound there. So what was it? I'm guessing I'm no scientist, but I think it's temperature controlled dirt. I got to think that's what it is. It's a temperature controlled dirt that is just so perfectly manicured. The oil has got the, the dirt has the exact amount of moisture in it so that your spike just, it just does, there's no give. And when you have a hole and you've got a guy that you're facing and his holes here and your holes here, you're landing funny each time. And it becomes kind of a something you got to deal with. I mean, every pitcher's got to deal with this. Relievers, it's even worse because they come in, they got nine guys that have already pitched. So there's holes and marks all over the mound. As a starting pitcher, we have that luxury. So what was nice about our mound was that it had that clay that was the it was a fixed clay that was the same every time. Who had the worst mound? Um, Were there places that you just went, oh man, I'm gonna have to really work to get this mound the way I like it today? No, not in the big leagues. Every mound was perfect. Every mound was beautiful. The only argument I would have with fields was temperature and humidity. 
that was the only thing. And, and no one has any control over that. So <laughs> was there one field that comes to mind that you just felt like you owned? Um, you know, I felt like I pitched pretty well in Oakland. I liked pitching in Oakland, but I don't think my numbers were all that great, but I just love the temperature of that coolness in the air in the evening. And I, I'm a big sweater. So I liked that part. The teams that I didn't like to face were Texas, Baltimore. Um, Texas was for sure. I, I didn't like pitching. There it was so hot. Uh, Baltimore was really tough in the, in the summer. Uh, St. Louis was kind of tough in the summer at times, but um, it was more humidity for me. You know, going back to uh, what you were talking about as a rookie and having to be in the, you know, the bat boys or whatever uh, little locker area, it made me think about in Boston at Fenway Park in September when you're the road team. Do you recall where the call-ups would have to get ready during the season uh, in September? Uh, oh yeah, it's uh, you're you're doubled and tripled up back in the corner. Yeah, behind yeah, well, that. Yeah, you've been in well, there. Yeah, and what the last couple years I was there, when there was you know a lot more players brought up, they would be out in the hall, like they would set up a little area outside, so you don't even get to be in the clubhouse <laughs> as a rookie. You know? <laughs> hey, you know it's, what? That clubhouse isn't all that great anymore. No, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're better off being field. Fans love. Fenway Park, but anyone who's played there or myself that's worked there, I mean, you've probably never been up to the press box at Fenway Park, right? Uh, I think I did poke my head in there once. It's horrible. It's the worst, man. <laughs> like, if I if you're pitching on the mound and I'm sitting in my spot up in the press box, your head is cut off by the frames of the window. And you've got blind spots everywhere. The walk, how do you describe the walk from the clubhouse to the dugout? Because every time I see a player doing that walk, I'm thinking they're going to trip and they're going to hurt themselves. Yeah. You know, Detroit was like that too, old Tiger Stadium. The tunnel was like for, I mean, if you were six foot, you hit your head. So back when they built that stadium, you know, obviously all the men were smaller back then, obviously. And uh, yeah, that Fenway was the same way. You know, a tight little tunnel and uh, the planky old wood planks with the moisture underneath and all the water that was in there. Um, old Wrigley was kind of like that too. Did you ever yeah. get to go to Wrigley? Yeah, where you yeah, during the World up? Series. Yep, yep. Wow. Um, you know what it, though? I always tell everybody, you know what? You got to go to Fenway. Go in there, stay to the eighth inning, see the Sweet Caroline, then, yep. then, then you want to beat the crowd, go beat the crowd. But that's a pretty cool atmosphere. And eat the kettle corn. As a player, <laughs> did you, did you ever get a chance to experience the concessions in any of the ballparks? No. The only concession we got was when they used to bring the food in for the players at times. Believe it or not. In old wow. Cleveland. Yeah, in Cleveland, I think. In Cleveland, that's... <laughs> it was concession food you guys got. I think it might have been back then, uh, yeah. In no one's going to feel sorry for you, Pat. <laughs> we won't tell anybody that. <laughs> what team put out the best spread for the players? Uh, I hear it's New York. It's the Yankees that put out the best food. Nowadays, for but, sure. Nowadays. But back then, who was it that, as a visiting player, was there one city you were like, oh, I can't wait to get in, you know, get the crabs in Baltimore or... Yeah, I think uh, I think the guy in Tampa, Guy, when he was running the visiting side, I can't remember his last name, but his name was Guy. He might have been the first guy that really was going all in with the food. That's what I remember was the Rays. But, yeah, of course, I've been to the Yankees. I was there in 13 at the new stadium as a bullpen coach. Yeah, it's fantastic. Spreads from here. It's like 50 yards long, the food spread. It's incredible. Um, 
Seattle was good when I played. Texas was good. I mean, they were all good, you guys. They really were, man. The food was always pretty good. I mean, that's one thing I will say. The food is way better right now in MLB. That's really great improvement. I've always wondered about professional athletes is how you survive showering five times a day every day. You know, for me, it's like if I shower more than once a day, my skin's going to start to get dry. You guys wake up in the morning, you take a shower, you head to the ballpark, you work out, you take a shower. Then you go and you do BP and then you take a shower and then you have the game and then you take a shower. I mean, damn, you guys showered a lot. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I still shower three times a day. <laughs> I, do I, don't, not. I don't know why. I just, it feels good. I just like it. I feel it's like refreshing. It's funny. I've already showered this morning. I'll probably shower again in the afternoon. But yeah, I, you're right. Those got to talk. You got to shower before you talk to the media, right? I play, yeah, I play ball with guys. You put the oil all over while they're showering because they get so dry. You know, that just happens. You know, you gotta, everyone's got to manage your own skin, I guess. I How guess did we get helped. here, Tom? How did I don't we know, here? but I was going to say, Barry, I think it helps, even if you're showering that. If you're moving all the time, you tend to dry off. So sitting on the couch, you probably don't want to shower five times a day. But if you're up and about and moving, it's good to stay clean. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't come, you couldn't go to batting practice and not come in and take a quick shower and to get ready for the game. A lot of guys do that. A lot of guys. Uh, before we bring in uh, members of our studio audience, I do want to ask you about when the Blue Jays acquired Roger Clemens as, as a Pat Hankin that was having, you know, just some career numbers. What were you, what were your thoughts when you first found out that the Jays had signed Roger? Um, oh, I was pretty fired up. I mean, hell, Guzman and I both had good years. Guzzi got sick the last month and a half of the season in 96. He missed the last month and a half, but he had, he was on, he was having a good year and I had a good year and we were going to bring Clemens back to Toronto. It was like, Whoa, that was a pretty nice three headed monster to go into the season. And uh, we all felt really comfortable, uh, felt really confident about our pitching. I think looking back, we had good pitching. We had playoff pitching, but we didn't score like, like some of the teams did in that era. And, uh, Unfortunately, looking back, you know, you, you teams tried to um, put DHs everywhere to try to keep up with the offense in that mid to late 90s era. And I think you, if you watch baseball every day, you realize that defense is incredibly critical and important. And without it, you can't win. And um, so I, I think that that's what happened. We signed Clemens. We were so excited. I, I was so excited. I had, hell, I had a 21 Roger Clemens poster in my, in my uh, A-ball dorm when I was wow. in – yeah, 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 I did. And uh, because, you know, everyone looked up to Roger Clemens when we were kids. I mean, shoot, man, he was just like exactly what you want to be if a starting pitcher. He was big, he was durable, he was intimidating, he threw strikes. He was a cool teammate, man. I learned a lot pitching with him. Uh, he was my throwing partner for two straight years. And he was, uh, he was as good as anybody I played with that could do this with the blinders and block out everything. Uh, all good big league pitchers could do that, but Clemens took it to the next level. Could he have done these numbers without sitting on vitamin B12 needles, as they refer to him as? Like, was he that good? Because, you know, people make the same argument about Bonds. It's like Bonds was already an all-star MVP type player before he started juicing. I mean, guys like that and, and, and Clemens, did they have to do that? Like, could they have just had Hall of Fame careers without enhancing themselves? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I don't know. Like, if they both come out and admitted that they've been enhanced or that they were enhanced, or we're just assuming that they were. Uh, well, yeah, I don't think Roger ever fully admitted it. He said it was vitamin B12 that they were shooting up into his ass. Is it true that Bonds hit more homers after the age of 35 than he did prior to the age of 35? Is that true? 
See, now you're throwing out stats that I don't know. I bet you one of our studio audience knows that because he's a stats freak. Yeah. That's so. pretty powerful if that's true because yeah. that's pretty staggering stat if that's when he was accused of getting on the PEDs when Sosa and McGuire were you know, getting all the limelight back then. These are all rumors that I've heard. I don't know if any of this is true about it. Did you ever see it, though? Did you ever have anybody come up to you and say, Pat, honestly, just give this a shot. This will actually be good for you and you'll, you'll be much better. Like, was that ever offered to you? Yeah. Yeah. It was offered to me. I'm not going to give up the guy's name, but yeah, no. he did. Yeah, I did. And uh, he said, I'll, he said, you'll be throwing like you were in Toronto. Wow. And was it, a, was it a hard no right off the bat from you then? Well, at that point I had 10 years in the big leagues. I'm like, you know what? Why am I going to do that now? I've already got max pension. I, I got, you know, the Jays have been awesome to me. Um, I, I, I played almost 10 years in Toronto and I just was like, I've done it clean the whole time. I did do an amphetamine before, so I'm not going to say I was 100% clean. I did try that. Um, I, I, uh, I never tried steroids. I never tried any performance enhancing other than an amphetamine. I did do that. Wow. All right. Let's uh, bring in the members of our studio audience, Pat. And this is one of the cool things we get to do here on the show is we uh, you know, allow our uh, fans to come in and uh, actually interact with you. And uh, we've got a number of faces that you've probably never seen before and some that you have seen before. Uh, in fact, we've got a really cool story that we're going to begin with. And uh, we want to actually begin with Jody. And Jody, you've got just an incredible Pat Henkin story that you would like to share. And I'd love you to be able to share it with us and with Pat. Good morning. Hi. Hey. Um, yeah, so um, pre-COVID times, um, the Blue Jays had their My Blue Jays um, program, and hopefully someday it comes back. Um, and my best friend and I alternate years, um, which one of us buys our ticket pack. We're not season ticket members, but game pack members. Um, and they do lottery systems um, where you can use your points to buy ballots in to get cool things. And um, I won, and it's always very short notice, um, I won um, dinner with a Blue Jays alumnus, and they don't tell you who it's going to be <laughs> um, until, like, after you won, by the way. Um, and we were lucky enough for it to be our friend Pat. Um, and it turned out that the night of the, the winning was my best friend's birthday. <laughs> Um, so we, my best friend and I, and my son, um, and my best friend's brother, um, all went down to the keg in Toronto downtown, uh, not the mansion, but the, the financial district one. Um, and we sat and had dinner with Pat and two members of the Blue Jays staff. Um, and it was a glorious evening. Pat, um, sat and engaged with us and listened to everything we had to say for hours um, my son kind of, you know, zoned out and laid under the table with his tablet and watched TV and, and, you know, Pat didn't kick us out. We all got tired and it was time to go home. It was great. You remember that Pat? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. The son was fun. He was, yeah. It's just typical. How old was he back then? How old was your son? Um, he's 11 now. So I think he would have been eight. Yeah. So that's that perfect age. You know, yeah. they got the phantom about, <laughs> Yeah, and yep. he's an ADHD kid too, so you know. <laughs> it was fun, man. That was that was good. That was a cool night. Yeah, I remember how, the kid. How cool was that? Like, first for you, Jody. I mean, 
you have no idea who you're going to see. And then all of a sudden, there's, you know, Cy Young Award winner. Pat. I'll never refer to you as a former Cy Young Award because you have the Cy Young, right? So you are a Cy Young Award winner, not a former Cy Young Award winner. And, I mean, you show up at dinner and there's, there's Pat. First of all, uh, uh, how many bottles of wine uh, were consumed at that dinner? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think we had any wine. Yeah, I don't think wine. we drank wine, yeah. <laughs> you're, more of a beer, you're more of a beer guy? I like red wine. I like red beer. I, I'm, uh, I mix it up. I mix yeah. it up. So how cool was that for you, Jody? Like, did it get? To, did you get to a point? And I found this with you, Pat, is that, and I, and I think this is why the young players took to you so much, is that once they get to know you, the whole, like, you know, what people, again, it's the perception of Pat Hankin. He's a major league player. He's won a Cy Young Award. He's won a World Series. But at the end of the day, you strip all that down, you're just a dude, right? You're just a really nice dude. How important was that, A, for you, Jody, to see, and then, Pat, to follow up after Jody answers, how important is that for you to just to be that kind of person? Jody, start with you. Yeah, well, I mean, before you started doing out of the park Zoom style, um, you did regular out of the park, and yeah. we had the opportunity to listen to you chat with guys, and sometimes you chatted baseball, and sometimes you chatted just their regular life stuff. And um, I had put on your most recent, I guess, out of the park with Pat in the car on the way down so that Keith could listen, my son, um, so that he could listen and kind of get to know who it was that we were going to see. Cause clearly, you know, he wasn't around in the nineties. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, so um, Pat had been talking about going to his daughter's um, rowing or something. Yeah. Rowing. Yeah. Rowing. Yeah. 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 In that one. Right. So we had something, you know, tangible, not baseball related to hold on to going into to meeting you. Um, yeah. And we didn't talk baseball all night. I think we talked all sorts of stuff. And I mean, at the time you were still employed with the Jays, um, you know, in town yep. um, on and off and stuff. So we talked about all sorts of stuff that night. Like I said, we were there for hours. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, we didn't talk baseball at all. I don't Not think we talked baseball much at all. I remember thinking that when we got in the car and I was driving back with the two J staff members, I remember saying, boy, we didn't talk baseball much, but it went by fast. So that's a good thing. And uh, yeah, it was good. I mean, I had a good time and you can't ever complain about the keg. That's good food. As a professional athlete and a celebrity, uh, especially back in your days when you were playing, was it hard to not get caught up? in the hype of Pat Henkin? Was it, uh, you know, cause for many people it is like when you, when you continuously get told you're great, people cheer you on 50,000 people, people see you at dinner. They want to see you and talk to you. How hard is that to not, you know, get in your head? Yeah. And it's a cool feeling for sure. When you first go through that phase of your career, uh, but baseball, especially at the MLB level, it's so humbling and so hard. I mean, at the time you think you're good on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're terrible by Thursday. So it's like, man, it's a tough game to stay confident. But, yeah, it's a cool feeling when you're walking down the city and people recognize you and stuff like that. There's no doubt. The one thing that was nice about playing in Toronto was that I, li I lived four hours from Toronto, for one. It was really convenient for my wife and family. But the second thing was when we went on the road, we didn't get recognized as much as the U.S. players, like we talked about Conseco. I remember when Conseco came to Toronto, he couldn't go anywhere on the road. He couldn't go anywhere in a hotel or a restaurant. Everybody recognized him. Whereas Blue Jay players, we were able to get away with a little bit more uh, incognito type of thing, you know, around other teams and other cities. Awesome. Jody, great question and great memory that you shared. Thank you so much for that. 
Uh, let's bring it over to, let me just make sure we get some audio from you. Uh, Sue joins us now. Sue, say hello to Pat. Hi, Pat. It's Hi. Great, great to, to see you. You look great and I love your stories. And I, I couldn't agree with you more about the change of, changing rules. I don't like them either. And I thought what you said was great about having a sort of Bluetooth umpire in a booth, because sometimes when you're watching TV and you see that box, the calls that they get wrong are just, it's frustrating. Anyway, apart from all that, I dug out an old uh, full count fact magazine remember that yeah and in that it said something about you got the nickname momo did you ever find out how you got that nickname and another couple of questions if you've time what exactly are you doing with are you a special advisor with the blue jays and what do you remember about the canadian baseball hall of fame induction all right we, we got to talk with momo first yeah, yeah, so the uh, that actually started. You guys remember in '91, Guzman was dealing, and Guzzi was dealing, and there was a commercial on the jumbotron. Juan Guzman, sixty feet six inches from the Dominican all the way to Toronto, Ontario. Okay, we were out on team stretch one time, and Jack Morris and I were next to each other because I followed him around. And uh, Jack said, "Man, I don't understand why you're not up there. You've won what? How many games you won in a row?" And he looks at me, and I'm like, "I don't know." And I knew, I knew exactly how many I won in a row. I was like, uh, I don't know. He's like, you know exactly how many you won in a row. I said nine. He goes, that should be you up there all the way from Frazier, Michigan, Detroit. He goes, you're the man around here. He goes, you're the Momo around here. And it's, that's how it stuck. Jack Morris gave me that nickname. Now, that was only it only stuck through Toronto. When I got traded to St. Louis, obviously, it didn't go with me. Nobody called me that over there or Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe and that's then a good the, thing. The second question was, um, help me out here. Um. Are you a special advisor with the oh, Blue Jays? What exactly so yeah, that special involved? Assistant with, yeah, special assistant with the Jays. So I got I got uh, that role. I was with that. I've been doing that role for a long time. Last year in the fall, I got uh, reassigned, transitioned, and basically let go, and and then transitioned to like a part time role. And um, we're going to do a little bit more alumni stuff. And uh, you know, there was a lot of people that got let go because of COVID and the Blue Jay organization. I think there was like 30 to 50 people and, and there was a ton of good people that got let go and it's unfortunate. So I feel very blessed about that. It is what it is. I, I had a great long run. I love the Jays, love MLB. And uh, so that was all great. As far as the Canadian Hall of Fame, that was a really cool experience. I was extremely nervous about the speech. I, uh, I'm not good at, at, at following along on my pre, uh, pre uh, speech that I wrote down or so I, I kind of ad libbed it all. I had a couple bullet points. I think I wrote down like seven things and, uh, I ended up telling some stories during that speech that I probably didn't plan or practice, but, uh, overall it was a cool experience, a great thrill. I was nervous. My family was really nervous. I do wish my dad was alive to see that. I know he saw it, but I wish he was there so I could have hugged him. Thank you awesome. so Sue, thank, thank you so much for that. Pat, you mentioned alumni, and, and, and you know, this is a very kind of uh, delicate situation, so, you know, I'm, I want to try to handle this as properly as possible. But um, as an alumni, how hard is it now to not have the face be Roberto Alomar anymore? And, and you know, whatever happened in his past, regardless, but just from a standpoint that this was the most decorated Blue Jay of all time, the man who put up the best stats of any other Blue Jay, a Hall of Famer, 
to see everything that has crashed, um, just from a baseball standpoint, just from a fan standpoint, how sad is it that, you know, he is no longer that? Yeah. Yeah, it is sad. I mean, especially because of the transparency with Pete Rose and um, all the things that came out in the past with MLB. This one seems to be quiet. And I'm not 100% sure what's going on with that. I, I don't know any more than you or anyone else that what they've read. I do know that um, it's unfortunate. If any of it's true, it's brutal. I don't know what else I can add to that other than it just stinks, man. It's just brutal if yeah, it's yeah. true. You know, I remember talking to, uh, and it was right on our show, and this was long before any of this Elamar stuff happened, but we were talking to, to Shaker. And he was talking about some of the things that, you know, some of the trouble Kelly Gruber had gotten into. And he said, part of the problem is back when we played, we were put up on a pedestal. We were doing things that we didn't even know we weren't supposed to do. And we were not only not discouraged, but we were encouraged. Um, the temptations as a young professional ball player. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, it's not what it once was where, you know, guys just thought that they could just do whatever they want because, Hey, I'm this person. Right. Uh, did you see a lot of that though? That can you understand what Shaker's saying that a lot of it was just the culture that these young guys were in at the time? I don't know, man. I mean, I was, uh, I played from 91 to 04. What was Shaker? Shaker was what? 79 or 82 to yeah. 90. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a decade before me. I don't know. Maybe it was a little different when he played. I don't know. I played. I mean, you know what's right and wrong, man. I mean, you know, you're raised by your parents. You know what's right and wrong. I don't know if you can blame it on an excuse of what era you're in. That's my opinion on that. Very well said. Very well said. Does, Sue, go ahead, Tom. Sorry. Does it worry you when you see MLB and, and Rogers, obviously, in this particular instance, come down and, you know, act unilaterally and just sort of end Olimar in baseball? And as fans as public there's no transparency we're not exactly sure what's happened does it set a troubling precedent going forward when people can just get wiped and you know for no reason at all well i don't know if we want to say no reason we don't know no 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 obviously not in this situation but if if mlb can take someone out and not be transparent about the reasons why does this lead us down a path where 10 years from now you know someone says the wrong thing that maybe isn't good for MLB corporate sponsors and they get wiped from the game. And if there's no transparency, how will we as fans know? Does that, is that taking us to a troubling place? It is. It's scary. I mean, there should be transparency for sure. Now on the, the person that they're the accuser, the person that's actually accused of doing something, maybe he's the one that wants to keep it quiet. I'm not saying in Alamar's case, I'm just saying in general, maybe that's why there's no transparency. Maybe it's just better for the entire industry if it's just not brought out to the public. I don't know. I'm, I'm just assuming. Yeah. Like, I don't know any information. I, uh, I really don't know anything. Matter of fact, I've had ex-teammates call me and go, have you heard anything? Have you heard anything? And this was going back a month or two. And I'm like, no, I haven't heard anything. I, I got nothing. And I, I know everyone I've talked to said the same thing. Yeah. I have nothing. I have nothing. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've had, you know, no luck really finding out. Other than somebody close to the situation saying, stay tuned. There's a lot more to this story than what you know. That, that's all I've been told, really. Now, a, as alumni, and I know Jesse Barfield has really taken over a lot of that face of the alumni, but are other guys now feeling, you know, we all kind of need to, to step up and make more appearances? Because Robbie did so bloody. I played with David Getty. David Getty, at the end of his career, came and played with Toronto, and he brought shaving cream and rosin to the clubhouse, to the team. And it was the first time I had ever seen that before. I think he pitched with the Giants a year before that season. 
And he said, oh, man, everybody in the Giants bullpen is doing it. And it creates like a tackiness for your fingers. Well, anybody that pitched will tell you that as the game goes on later in the game, the balls aren't rubbed up as well. So in the fifth inning to the ninth inning, the balls are a little more slicker. So the relievers needed that actually at that time. Now, I don't know if they're rubbing the balls up more consistently or not. But And, you know, when I was a starting pitcher, I used the sticky stuff. I used uh, rosin and shaving cream. And the rosin and shaving cream, the shaving cream would dissolve. It was like the alcohol in the shaving cream. Then you grab the rosin and it would make it like a stickiness. But it didn't last. It only lasted for like an inning at the most. And then you'd have to do it again in between innings sometimes. If it was humid, you'd have to do it every inning for sure. And then I started to go with a little bit of pine tar on my glove hand. I put a little bit of pine tar on my glove hand. My teammates knew. Other players, I think, knew. I think the league kind of knew that we were doing that. It's just um, I don't think we realized if it was uh, it was manipulating the spin rate as much as it was. Enter that night, and that year you were inducted with Dennis Martinez, Wayne Norton, Tony Kubek. Um, come on, it's not coming up. Howard Starkman and Bill Shuttleworth, William Shuttleworth, who was a who was a, uh, um, a developer of the game way back. That's really an impressive class, and. Um, just to explain what happens, to it's in a great big tent on the rotary field, and everybody marches in, and you sit at the front, and then when you're called up, you're introduced, and Fergie Jenkins, I think he was there that year, he uh, takes your jacket off, he puts the Hall of Fame jacket on, I was the chair of the board, so I took your jacket, I hung it up. Did I give you your wallet back, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's that's not just a speech. That's a whole weekend of being exposed to fans and real baseball aficionados. Um, how does that make you feel? I know your family was with you and they were just I know they really, really had a good time. And um, it was great that you were there. Comments about that? Oh, just the fact that, well, one I think of was my daughters walking around. I got this trifecta of these girls, and they are just, they can't believe that these fans know who I am. That was the, the one thing I think they, <laughs> they're looking at dad like he's some kind of rock star type of thing. And, and, my, and my wife's going, well, he played here for a long time, you guys. And they're like, man, you know, I don't think they quite grasp the fact that, you know, I played as long as I did and, and, and had some decent seasons. So, yeah, but that's a cool event. You're right. I, I didn't even mention about the golf, the two gala dinners, uh, that softball thing. I don't know if they do that anymore, but I remember Dennis Martinez, first pitch home run. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was fun. Wow. Yeah, what great memories. And I think I can speak on behalf of all of us here that not only are you worthy of being in the Hall of Fame, but, uh, you know, I think that you need to be honored more at the uh, ballpark at the Rogers Center. Right? I, I, I think, yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, John, thank you for your question, and uh, let's finish it off uh, with Craig. And, uh, Craig, we were talking earlier about some stats, and, and neither Tom or myself had any clue. Do you Are you able to fill in any of those blanks at all? Uh, it was exactly correct. First of all, thank you, Barry, Tom, and the crew. Great to be on. I'm such a Pat Hankin fan of Pat Hankin the person, so this is amazing for me. Oh, yeah, that's 73 that uh, Bonds put up. He was like 37 or 38. Yeah, after 35 was as was more productive home run-wise than prior to 35, just just to just to set that aside. Yeah, just to clean that up. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So, so the juice did help. Well, yes. Well, <laughs> 
Barry, that's probably a whole other show because Barry Bonds prior to that was very likely on a Hall of Fame trajectory already. So that might be a whole different show altogether, to be totally honest. But but I'll digress here. Uh, Pat, I definitely have a question for you. Two quick comments, if, if we will. First of all, you talked about that rubber mat now instead of the concrete slab. And you gentlemen were saying the Hankin mat. Gentlemen, it was right there. The Pat mat. It was right there, guys. It was right there. <laughs> Couldn't, couldn't resist saying. Yeah. In fact, I thought for sure, when Tom asked you about the ballparks, I thought County Stadium was coming out of your mouth for sure. You used to own the Milwaukee. I don't think you ever lost against the Brewers at that ballpark. I thought you were going to say that, just as a, as a side note. But, Pat, my question for you, because I, I know I've had the pleasure of, of talking baseball with you in the past, so I know that your God-given talent is only part of what you bring to the table. Up here, just a baseball mind. So I want to take 1996 Pat Hankins. So, in other words, Cy Young. I want to bring him to the present. And if, we're, if it's 1996, then Charlie O'Brien's your battery mate. He comes with you. You're on the mound at the Rogers Center. Shohei Otani striding towards the batter's box. Charlie O'Brien calls time, comes out to the mound. He's going to discuss with you, Pat, how you're going to approach a sensational hitter like Shohei Otani. What's that conversation like, Pat? And let's get between your ears here. And let's, let's hear how would Pat Hankin go about approaching a hitter as special as Shohei Otani? Hit him. Hit him. Hit him. Hit him. Hit him. <laughs> yeah. Hit him and move on. <laughs> Is anybody on base? Oh, my God. Oh, we're setting up the scenario. Pat's he's, going deep. Yeah, you know what? He's taking like a picture. Let's go. Let's go top of the 10th. Zero like a, runner on ooh, second. Ooh. Run, oh, runner on second. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. The extra inning thing. I'm not yes. going in. Put in. Going. <laughs> I don't want to go in in the 10th inning with a guy on second. Uh, you know what? A lot of times it's uh, what's working for that day. How you're going to attack a guy? Otani's a guy that kind of is jumping out of the box, just like Ichiro did. So what we did against Ichiro, and I know you can't compare the two because the one's got a lot more power, but Otani is a guy that lunges. So for me, I would try to stay down on the way, and I would try to throw soft away because I feel like if you try to throw hard, you you you're kind of in his path. Um, and again, I didn't watch a ton of video on him. I went a lot on my instincts when I was playing, and um, I went a lot on what the catcher thought too, and we collaborated. So Charlie would come out and he'd say. What do you want to do here? Runner on second. Let's let's mix up our signs. Okay, uh, we've been going first pitch after one. Let's go last pitch indicator. Okay, we're gonna do last pitch indicator. Shortstop runs in. He tells you we got last pitch. Got that? Okay, you tell the second baseman. Then you say let's go heater away. We'll go heater away. If we miss, we'll go fish. All right, and we'll just do no signs the first three pitches because we're worried about the guy in second relaying to Otani. So we'll do the first three pitches based on the strike ball or how how it affects it. So a lot of times it'll be something like that, or it'll be as simple as how you feel. Good. All right, man, this, let's go. Come on, let's roll it up. Let's get up the ground ball right here. It could be as simple as that, too. A lot of times it depends on the game, the situation, how you're feeling. Uh, there's a good chance as a starting pitcher, I probably wouldn't have been out there in the 10th inning. <laughs> not in this day and age. Not in not this day and age, yeah. But That's so those awesome. Are, those are the type of conversations you'll have when, when the middle infielder comes out. Uh, a lot of times they're going over the sign, the sequence, what they're going to do. But, yeah, Otani's a great player. I really like watching him play. But the guy that jumps and leaves the box like that, usually changing the speeds like this is effective. We're, okay, thank you very much, Craig. Now, I know that as a professional, you can't let things get to you. I know that, like, okay, I, I never played at your level. I, I was at fantasy camp. And when, I, and when there were certain pitchers, I would go to the plate going, okay, here we go. I, oh, boy, here we go. I don't know what. As a pitcher, what, what, was there ever a time where somebody came up to the plate and you're thinking, all right, here we go. You know, like here's, here's Tony Gwynn or here's, you know, you know, whoever. Like were there ever moments where you almost had to take a breath and go, all right, like this is going to be interesting. 
Yeah. So the first time I faced Winfield, um, I remember thinking, oh, my God, he's so far off the plate. I'm going to throw this ball down and away. He can't get there. And, boy, could he get there. <laughs> so I learned that right away. So that, that was the first one. I realized, okay, the down and away to Winfield's not really down and away. He can get out there and get that. And then uh, Frank Thomas was pretty intimidating when you faced Frank for the first time. Um, I remember facing George Brett for the first time in spring training. I was, I idolized George Brett as a high school kid and, and amateur at shortstop third baseman. I love George Brett. Um, yeah. Those are the types of guys, like it's the same type of guys you would think it'd be. It'd be McGuire, Canseco, uh, A-Rod, Gwynn was, you know, you didn't worry as much about guys that hit singles, you know, like right. no offense to guys that hit singles, they're pesky. You need them to win. And I think they're important, but it, it's those power guys that really separated uh, your focus and your concentration level and your, in your awe was the ability of how quickly they could change the score. Were, was there ever a moment where you actually struck out one of those guys and inside you're like, shit, yeah. Like, you, do, you don't want to express it on the mound, but inside this is like, holy shit, I just struck this guy out. I'm pretty sure I struck out Puckett once. And I wow. think I think I might have got him one time. And I remember as a rookie guy said, you can't walk him and you can't strike him out. He's like, if you throw the ball between the dugouts, he's going to put wood on it. I remember guys telling me that when I was and, and uh, sure enough, when I faced Puckett, I, he was just such a great hand-eye battler. I think I might have got him one time. That might be the one time where I was like, yeah, I can't believe I just got Puckett on a punch-out. I'm pretty sure I got him once. I have to look it up. That's awesome. Well, that, that's a perfect place to end it. Uh, Pat, listen, thank you so much for taking the time. I know we had to play a little phone tag over the last few weeks, and I appreciate you uh, working it out in your schedule to join us. We all had fun here today, and uh, it was great to get you to, to interact with everybody here. Okay, thanks for the guest calling in. There is former Toronto Blue Jay, Pat Henkin. Wow, uh, just just a fantastic conversation. As we spoke about earlier, probably one of the most open and honest conversations we've had uh, for Pat to openly admit that he had taken uh, amphetamines before. Just the fact that he admitted that tells me that he is, you know, not trying to hide anything. It's, it's amazing. And this is my second time getting to talk to Pat. It was really cool actually getting to, to see him face to face because the first one was back when we were, you know, doing the old phone interviews. But I was struck by him the first time by just his presence, his command. The advice that he gave me for, for Liam about baseball helped him all year this year about foot placement and where his foot fault or foot strike is. That, that was like huge. And he gave us amazing advice again today not just for me and Liam but for any baseball player um, such an amazing conversation and you're right it went to so many amazing places you know from PEDs to Little League ball to you know Blue Jay history all over the map and we were guided by one of the best speakers that we've had on this program absolutely and this is what out of the park is folks if you've never seen the show before this is the first time you've tuned in uh, check out our YouTube page. We have a number of conversations uh, with former Toronto Blue Jays, uh, and we go in all different kinds of places. This is not just talking about statistics and sports. In fact, there's not a lot of that talk at all. This is about humans. It's about people, and that's why we call ourselves the human side of sports. Well, Thomas, uh, once again, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to do this with you. Uh, I can definitely admit that while I uh, didn't start shaving until I was 35, uh, at least I've managed to keep a, a full head of hair on top. Well, me too. I don't know about that. That's Listen, a... I shaved this. This is voluntary. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, it is. And I think it's also very sticky too. So 
You may want to clean that up. Tom, thank you as always. And folks, thanks to all of you for making us a part of your week.